Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined, as always, by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. And I'm Matt Robeson, and I know how much, Chris Hill, you love to talk tech companies. I love to talk tech companies. We have kind of a love-hate relationship with tech companies on this show. So I thought a great place for us to start today would be the news that Facebook is working on an Instagram app for kids under 13, of which I have three. Is this in any way, shape, or form a good idea? I won't repeat Saturday Night Live's joke about it, but they clearly think no. What do you think? I'm sort of tempted to turn this question around to you because my children are no longer under the age of 13. So part of me looks at this story and says, well, I don't have to deal with this. Um, but And I am curious what, what you think about it as a parent of younger children. But, but I look at it, uh, you know, trying to be um, as open-minded as possible with Facebook. Um, I think if I were a shareholder of Facebook, and I am not, um, I would look at this as an opportunity for Facebook to increase the amount of trust that people have in the company and specifically in the Instagram division of the company. Um, there is a version of this that goes well, that they do this right, that it's ad-free, the security is ramped up to the greatest degree possible. Um, we don't hear um, anecdotal stories here and there um, about kids' accounts being hacked or anything untoward or kids being targeted in any way, that it, it really is the very best version of what Facebook and Instagram hope it can be. That's the good scenario. Uh, but anytime you're an investor, you have to look at the bear case. What, it, what does the version look like when this doesn't go well? Um, and I think it's pretty easy. And then the folks at Saturday Night Live, as they often do, they um, they get right to the heart of it um, in terms of like, gosh, what could go wrong here? Um, there's a lot that can go wrong here. There's a again, there's a way to get it right. I think that in terms of the bottom line, uh, this is not something that Facebook should design um, with uh, fat profit profit margins uh, in mind, um, they should look at this as an opportunity to create kind of a brand halo um, and just to do something right. Because if it goes well and young people have uh, their first experience with social media is a really great, safe experience with their immediate family, you know, cousins, you know, family, grandparents maybe live far away, all of that. Like, if it is truly great, um, then that will pay dividends for Facebook down the line. Um, but given Facebook's track record around uh, everything they do, um, less so on Instagram, but more on, on the, the namesake platform, um, I think people are understandably skeptical. Well, I'll... I'll... I'll give you, I mean, from my perspective, I think that this serves as a Rorschach's test for how you feel about social media in general. If you see it as mostly neutral or benevolent, a way to network with your old high school friends and what have you, then it's less likely to present a problem for you perception-wise. 
if you're concerned about, as many Americans are, about issues of privacy, about the fact that we've talked about on this show that the basic business model of social media companies is that the users are the product for advertisers. So what are you doing um, as a company when you offer a product targeted to kids younger than 13? They're not, they don't have purchasing power. And so if you, if you see social media companies in a more negative light at baseline, then you're more likely to see the, the introduction of something like this for young kids as sort of a gateway drug to the heavy stuff to come later. And you're trying to kind of get these kids fed into the pipeline to eventually be part of the Facebook universe where they can be part of the product that you're offering to advertisers. So, you know, I, I, I am as a parent, someone who is very, very cautious about kids. I don't believe in sharenting, which is the term um, that has been coined by actually a, a brilliant friend of mine named Leah Plunkett, who wrote a book called Sharenting. Um, uh, I, I'm very, very cautious about this, about sharing any information about my kids on social media. I think they should get to determine once they have fully formed frontal lobes in their brains, um, what they share about themselves. But I think it'll be a Rorschach test. And this portion of our show, by the way, brought to you by Facebook. I'm joking about that, but <laughs> I do encourage everyone listening to like the Beyond Politics page on Facebook, which is a great place to follow all kinds of great content and discussions like this. I don't know. How does my, how does my reaction grab you, Chris Hill? It's interesting because... You know, you mentioned the sharing thing, and I can't remember if you and I talked about this before, but um, Joanna Stern is a, a fantastic columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Um, she writes a lot about consumer technology. Um, for anyone who's on Twitter, she's a fantastic follow on Twitter. And um, last year, she wrote a, a great piece about children who are now becoming aware of the fact that their parents have documented their entire life. Um, kids who are, you know, 10 to 12 years old, who are just starting to figure out that since they were babies, uh, their parents have been sharing their entire life and they're not happy about it. Um, as I mentioned, my kids are, you know, I've got two in high school and one in college. Um, the two in high school, they're not interested in social media at all. Um, they're not interested in uh, Instagram, Facebook. They don't have accounts. Um, I, 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 um, wondering how much of this move by Facebook is um, a recognition that not everybody wants to do this. Not everybody wants to um, put their life online. And so it, um, while they may want to put this out there as, hey, we're trying to um, create a safe space for kids, which, you know, that's, that's warranted. That's a, that's a good thing. I'm not knocking that. Um, this is also a way for Facebook to get younger people interested in sharing their life online. Um, because if all of a sudden the pendulum starts to swing the other way, um, that's bad for their business in the long run. That's exactly the concern that I suspect, you know, jokes on Saturday Night Live aside, that we are going to start to see out there. You remember back when you and I were young, they used to sell all the, all the young people listening to this show. This is going to be surprising to you. They used to sell something, candy cigarettes, right? They used to sell and, and, what and cigars, was the, and cigars. cigars. Well, what was the point of that? The point was to get 
kids into the idea of using this product that it was fun and cool and you know and now you're seeing this kind of thing with you know vaping and and bubblegum flavor anyway again i i think it's kind of a rorschach test if you think that social media is generally benign or positive you won't see the creation of a safe space for kids to interact over social media won't pose a particular problem for you if you think it's a bit more sinister than that then this will pose a big problem i know we have diverted significantly from the focus of the show which is on business stocks economics and investing but this is an absolutely fascinating conversation as part of the larger ongoing discussion we've had about the business model of big tech companies a conversation which i know will continue but speaking of the business model of tech and the, the way we all interact in the economy these days, you name-checked the, the Wall Street Post a moment ago, and there was a fascinating headline today in the Wall Street Post that JP Morgan and Salesforce have joined the list of big companies out there that are dumping their office space. And the fact that so many of them are unloading office space, they see as a sign that remote work which is of course exploded over the course of the last year is hurting demand for commercial real estate. Are you seeing in all of your analysis of stock market and investing and the economy, are you beginning to see these kinds of ramifications playing out when it comes to commercial real estate and remote work? Uh, quick question before I answer that. Did you see this in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post? Because you Wall said Street Wall Street Journal. Oh, okay. You said Wall Street Post twice. I said Wall Street Post. You did. Oh, well, you see, this is this is what's known as Zoom Brain, which is another ramification of 2020 and the way we're all working remotely. I'm I'm I have Zoom Brain. Well, there you go. I saw this in the Wall Street Journal, which is a, a more likely source of this type of commercial real estate focused news. The answer, as always, is you need to drink more coffee. Um, I, I think this is two large companies that are hedging their bets. And what I mean by that is at this point in time, this is two large companies that uh, presumably have surveyed their workforce, have looked at their own productivity over the past 12 months, and have calculated at the moment, at this point in time, we can get by with less office space. So we're going to spend less on physical office space. Um, we're going to uh, invest more in remote work. And um, we think this is a smart way to invest our money. Now, when I say they're hedging their bets, like all bets, this is a bet they could lose. This is a bet that six months from now or 12 months from now, they could realize things have changed that some people went back to the office and those people are actually happier than the people who are doing more remote working. And now the people who had said in previous surveys, no, I'm good working from home. Now they're vaccinated. All of their coworkers are vaccinated. They're feeling safer. And they're saying, actually, you know what? Now that it's further down the line, I want to come back to the office. And so in the same way that the headline is, Large companies are giving up office space. I personally am not going to be surprised if a year from now, there's going to be a headline in the Wall Street Journal that says some version of, here are a couple of large companies that are scrambling for office space because they need to figure out how to get more people back in. Um, I, I, again, it's a hedge of, of bets. It's a smart way to go. 
it's not going to surprise me if the pendulum swings the other way. Well, you know, speaking of, of taking the long view, you had suggested to me before we got on the air that there is a topic to talk about. And by the way, this was also covered in the Wall Street Journal, not the Post. Um, it's actually the, the the lead story today. The I, I don't I don't know how to pronounce this company. Ar- Arkegos is that right? I believe it's Arkegos. I'm heartened Arkegos. by the fact um, that people on CNBC are pronouncing it multiple ways. Oh, that makes me feel a lot better. I I, I feel much less uninformed. But you know, you were suggesting that the whole Arkegos situation really underscores the importance of of timeline and taking a a long time horizon in your investing. What is going on, first of all, with Archegos? And second of all, um, how does that kind of lead you to that that conclusion? Um, Let me unpack this because this is a little involved, but I'll I'll start with the fact that you know, this story reminds me of something that I've said for years, which is the good news for individual investors like you and me and folks listening is we've got more information available for free at our fingertips than investors have ever had before um, in a hundred years. That's also the bad news. (laughs) Because we have so much information available at our fingertips, um, it can lead us to get distracted to get um, overly emotional and to get caught up in things that um, really don't have anything to do with the way that we invest. Archegos Capital is um, a privately run fund. Um, It is technically designated as a family office. And family office funds, there are somewhere between five and 10,000 around the world. Um, collectively, they manage somewhere north of $6 trillion. Oh, just like my family office. Got exactly. exactly. Yeah. Just like you would imagine a family fund. It, it's <laughs> like they're watching my life. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, here's, here's the, um, the thing about family uh, office funds that has come to light because of Archegos Capital. They are not held to the same disclosure requirements that you and I are, that mutual funds are, even that hedge funds are. Um, They are really in the shadows of the investing world. Um, Long story short, um, uh, uh, and a lot of these funds are conservatively managed, but Archegos Capital decided to invest in a very risky way using a lot of leverage. Um, They spread their risk out among some of the biggest banks in the world, including Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse. And some of those trades went south recently. Um, they were buying up stocks um, that um, are known to everyday investors like um, Viacom CBS, Discovery Communications. These are two businesses the, um, that really are involved in uh, a big trend that we've talked about before, Matt, and that is the rise of streaming video. Um, when you think about Netflix and Disney Plus, Viacom CBS um, with all of their streaming apps with Paramount Plus, they're part of that. So is Discovery Communications with Discovery TV and all of their channels. So Archegos was, was using leverage to bid up all these stocks. Um, the companies themselves didn't know that this was happening. Um, and when the companies made some announcements that caused the stocks to sell off, that meant that Archegos had to all of a sudden liquidate 
um, their shares in a very quick manner. Um, it's not very easy to sell $100 million worth of a stock. Um, and so they, they suffered losses. Um, the banks that they were working with suffered losses. Um, as you and I are talking, shares of Credit Suisse are down, I think, 20% in the past two days. Um, and they've had to come out and warn their shareholders about um, how they're not going to have a very good quarterly report the next time they report. Um, so all of which to say, if you're an individual investor, um, this only affects you if you own one of these stocks that Arkegos has been involved in. Um, but to go to the point of timeline, this is, this is why having a long timeline is really one of the few truly powerful advantages that we have as individual investors. Um, if you are looking at owning a great business for 10 years, then the fact that a stock drops 20% in two days, um, yeah, that, that hurts when you look at your portfolio. I've, I've had that happen plenty of times. It's not fun to look at your portfolio and see red, um, but it's also a really great feeling to look at your portfolio at a stock that you bought 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And sure, there were some rough days over that timeline, um, but the longer you own a stock, the more likely it is that you're going to make money on it. Um, so uh, it, again, it's, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get emotional and just caught up in that, that you know, sort of gut feeling of, oh my God, what's happening with the stock? Do I need to sell it? Um, but remember that you're playing a different game than the people at Archegos Capital. You're playing a different game than hedge fund managers are. When they, when they use the phrase long-term, Long term means three to six months. That's how quickly they're looking to trade their stocks. If you're an investor, if you view a business as I want to be a part owner of this, you're taking a much longer time horizon. What is the appropriate balance point between that guidance and the, the guidance to periodically check in on what you hold? And maybe do a little bit of it's spring to do a little bit of spring cleaning in terms of your investments. Maybe throw out some of the old. Decide that you know whatever was in fashion a year ago is is no longer in fashion. Just like with your clothes, I, I've the guidance that I've always heard from wise heads like you is you really you don't want to futz with what you've got too much. You really do want to take that long view. And the more you peek, it's like if you're, it's like if you're baking something, the more you peek, the more you open the oven, you know, the more tempted you are to futz with it, the more you're going to disrupt the cooking process, let it cook. So what, how often should you be checking in doing some of that spring cleaning, maybe cleaning up your portfolio a little bit? Peter Lynch, one of the great investors of the last 35 years, um, used to say that you should never invest in any business that you can't illustrate with a crayon. Um, you and I have talked before about how you, you got to understand the business. You need, you, need to, you, know, you need to be able to explain to a friend or someone in your family, this is what this business does, and this is why we bought shares of it. Um, and if you can answer those questions, and I recommend write it down on a piece of paper or, or write it down in an email and send yourself that email. 
Um, I do think uh, doing a periodic spring cleaning, checking in um, is a good idea. And check the business. Don't just look at the stock price. Check the business against your original thesis. Why did I buy this stock? Was it the management? Was it the product? Was it, was it their growth plans? Um, do those reasons still hold? Um, I bought a bunch of stocks uh, about six weeks ago. Um, almost all of them were in the tech space. Um, I think they're all listed on the NASDAQ. And basically, Matt, I, I brilliantly timed the top of the NASDAQ to buy these stocks. So I bought these stocks and all of them are down. They're all down five to 25%. And the reason I'm calm is because I know these are businesses that I bought with the next 10 years in mind and nothing has fundamentally changed about the underlying businesses. The businesses are the same. The management is the same. Their growth prospects are the same. The stock price is lower. Again, it doesn't feel great to look at that, but the reason I'm able to sleep at night is because I know the reasons I bought those businesses, they're all still the same. And what if you're a mutual fund or index fund investor, you're not so much focused on individual stocks, would you recommend sort of that same, it sounds like a roughly annual checkup process on the allocation and, and the balance and diversification of, of your holdings? Would you advise a, a deeper examination or more often? Um, I think if you own an S&P 500 index fund um, and you're just so socking away every you know, month or so, putting money into that, that's a great strategy. Keep it up. Um, there's no reason to stop that. You can diversify a little bit with, um, um, you know, maybe uh, an ETF that's just focused on tech stocks um, like the NASDAQ uh, 100, something like that. Um, it, it gets a little more growth in your portfolio. Um, but there are great investors who have just taken the index approach um, and held to that strategy for decades and it paid off in the end. This is Business Lens in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed with Matt Robeson signing off for Chris Hill. Thanks so much. <laughs>